0: had me and cello playing the cello has so many pluses It never goes old Give it one listen you'll see what the fuss is. Hi everybody it's five o'clock on a Friday and you know what that means it's time for another cello chat interview and this month is being brought to us courtesy of MSR classic CDs check them out online at msrcd.com. A wonderful collection of audio recordings there. And thank you for your support, MSR. And with me this week is Catherine Pict-Reed of the Philadelphia Orchestra. How are you today, Kathy?
1: I'm very well, Ben. How are you?
0: I'm doing great, too, all things considered.
1: (laughs) Wonderful. That's good to hear.
0: Well, it's a delight to have you on the, the program here. And can we start by having you introduce yourself, tell your musical background to the viewers?
1: Oh, sure, I'd be glad to. Um, I'm from the Midwest originally, actually Iowa originally. Um, My mother was a music educator and uh, she was a pianist. And as I discovered later in my life, she also played the cornet, which is interesting. But um, yeah, so she taught in the Iowa public schools until she got married. And um, started having a family and then pivoted to teaching piano in the home. So we had an endless stream of young kids coming in for lessons. And as a tiny child, I would sit on the floor and watch this. And I was just fascinated. I thought, wow, this is the coolest thing ever. Look at all these big kids doing this. This must be the thing to do, you know. And so I started pestering my mother for piano lessons when I was about four and she gave me some fun little books to play with for a while. And when she saw that I still had interest at the age of five, she said, OK, we're going to start. So that's that's how it all started. And also, um, I heard a lot of classical music in the home from an early age. My father was an opera nut and. You know, we had a beautiful hi-fi stereo vinyl at that time. And so he had all kinds of, of um, recordings and we listened to the Met every every Saturday, you know. So um, it was a subtle way of indoctrinating all of us kids. <laughs> so, so we all got piano. And then um, I ended up, uh, we ended up moving to uh, Madison, Wisconsin when I was about nine or 10 and that's when we all diverged into string instruments and i think looking back on it i think the funny part was that um my mom said you know i've been through the music education thing for years and i've listened to young kids you know learn the clarinet and the trumpet and the flute and it was just too much. I don't want to have that in my home, so we're all going to, all, all the kids are going to learn strings. Well, that's still kind of the same process. Um, so so I think that um, one of the things that drew me to the cello, besides the beautiful timbre, was listening to a lot of recordings at home. I, I think we had all the Janusz Starker box suites, and also um, living in Madison, a university town, um, there was a there was a lot of um, ability and, and um, <clears throat> uh, offerings of concerts that you could attend, and I do remember at a young age hearing Zara Solza, and that kind of did it for me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Plus, I was like, oh, there's a woman up there playing. Oh my God, that's so cool. Yeah. So fortunately, I was able to start private lessons with the cello right from the get go, and I think that helped with my with my progress. Mm-hmm. And then the other wonderful thing that happened in Madison when I was, I think about in eighth grade was that Marvin Rabin came to town from Boston and started the Wisconsin Youth Symphony Orchestra. And both I and my brother were able to play in that orchestra for about three or four years. And that was absolutely incredible because not only did you have that experience, you you got to play with all the best kids from 50 or 60 miles around Madison. And, um, It was really an amazing, amazing experience. It really was fantastic. And actually, I stayed in touch with um, uh, Marvin's son, David, um, from then on. We're still in touch. And um, I, I reconnected with Marvin later in his life when both I and my brother were in Philadelphia. And he would come to Philadelphia and visit us. And we'd talk about the old days and reminisce. He was quite an unbelievable individual. He had a memory like a steel trap. He knew everybody in the industry, everyone. And even at an advanced age, he would travel and give seminars and lectures about youth orchestras and things like that. So those were really um, very special memories for me about him. And and then when I reached college age, I did a couple of years at the University of Wisconsin in Madison and um, Otto Werner Mueller was there who was just one of the the most amazing teachers of orchestral repertoire for college-age kids. I mean, I learned the Rite of Spring with him when I was 18. I will never forget it. And I'm telling you, it saved me when I got the job in Philly and there was Rite of Spring. And I was like, wow, that's been ingrained in my brain since I was 18. I mean, he knew how to take apart a piece and put it back together just better than anybody, you know, at, at a real college level, it was just fantastic, and we did a lot of other uh, really great works. Mahler first, and um, Petrushka, a lot of Sibelius. We we had a wonderful horn section then too, so it was it was really added to my uh, orchestral education that started with WiSo. Yeah, so. Uh, let's see. I I ended up transferring to Urbana-Champaign University of Illinois for a couple of years uh, to study with a teacher that I had met at a summer festival, and then while I was there, I heard from my brother about Nairuk and um, went to a summer festival in Claremont, California, in 1974, and met him. And that was unbelievable. I can't even describe it. <laughs> it was just um, I never met a teacher like him before and to to experience him and also to see what he could do with other students in a master class convinced me that I had to somehow get to boston and study with him so it did it did happen fortunately and um i ended up going to grad school because he said that was the the best way to have regular lessons with him and um yeah it was the best decision i ever made so yeah. one of
0: a kind brain was yes.
1: Yes, one-of-a-kind brain diagnostically and um, had so many options to choose from based on his analysis of who you were as a person, how your brain worked, <clears throat> what would what would connect, what would create a light bulb moment for you when you were studying. So <clears throat> yeah, it was very unique. Right.
0: So. And then was the position at in the Philadelphia Orchestra and teaching at Temple, were they around the same time?
1: Um, Not exactly, no. Uh, When I first got in the orchestra, it was, um, I think it was 1979. And actually it was a process. Uh, In 1982, I started teaching at the New School of Music, which no longer exists. They ended up merging with Temple uh, and I think the, the late 80s. And therefore, because I had that relationship with the new school, I got merged kind of <laughs> as well. Um, and um, also uh, in just working with and meeting these incredible musicians in the orchestra, um, I was able to create this um, uh, cello orchestra repertoire class at Temple that I that I teach every spring, which is a lot of fun, you know. So sure. <clears throat> yes.
0: Well, let's use that as a Jumping off point to talk a bit about um, on the one hand, there is a movement in the country, a uh, rather strong one, I think, in a lot of music departments to acknowledge the fact that the number of string players tell us in this case that they're putting out and the number of job openings in the full time symphony orchestras just don't line up. Mm-hmm. So, okay, how can we prepare people for not only teaching, but this entrepreneurship to try and find ways to to gainfully make a living. But at the same time, I'm also very hopeful that a number of the factors that go into preparing youngsters for thinking about how to how to have even a hope of getting uh, winning an audition like that. Those are useful skills, whether you ever win such a position or, or audition even in the first place. So I'm picturing, I mean, granted for you, I'm sure the number of times that they uh, announce a program and that you it's a piece you play played before is pretty common. But at the same time, suppose they program something new, and you see those passages. You know what I'm talking about, those passages. Right. Oh, boy, here we go. What are some of your favorite go-to ways, not only to get to where you can just play it perfectly, but that you can do so as quickly, you can get there as quickly <clears throat> as possible?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, are, are you speaking about like a brand new piece where there's just, you know, no recorded Performance you can listen to on YouTube or anything like that. Yeah, let's go yeah. from that.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Right. Okay. Um, well, for us, usually, if if this is a helpful tool, there are usually scores in the library mm-hmm. that you can at least look at to see. All right, what you know? How does my part fit in with the overall piece? Um, you can certainly check metronome markings, um, um, articulations. Um, I would. Usually the parts are marked with with bowings as well, so um, yeah, I I just end up sort of going going through the piece at a slow tempo and thinking, all right, you know, is is this piece melodic or is it primarily rhythmic? And is it if it's primarily rhythmic, then I I, I want to be accurate, but I don't worry too much about. <clears throat> you know, about critical, like, lyrical passages that, that aren't there, sort of like the Rite of Spring. The Rite of Spring is all about wind. So, um, yeah, that that's one thing. Um, what else would I do? I would definitely try to read any commentary that the composer would add to the piece. Usually, that's fr- more, much more frequently done these days, you know, about certain... I don't know articulations or unusual markings that you may not be familiar with and not sure how to how to do. Um, yeah, so it it is challenging for for brand new pieces because you don't have the same kind of um, uh, body of work to sort of help you get over the get over the hump. But I mean, you you must perform new works as well, right? When you're when you're uh, yes, planning programs.
0: I suppose maybe here we can branch over a little bit, and because I mean, you're right. When it's a when it's a new work, there it's different pluses and minuses, isn't it? On the one hand, there's not the the history of resources, but there's also the living composer to be able to ask is is nice.
1: Yeah, I, I was more focusing on how do I prepare before the composer even oh, shows yeah. up but you're right and and frequently they are there. Uh it it depends if if it's a world premiere or something like that they're usually there. And um you may or may not get specific help with a with an orchestral rehearsal. It it depends on what the conductor thinks is important and what the issues are. But yes, that that's a critically important uh part of it if if the, if the composer can be there. But if it's a a new piece for the orchestra and it's not a commission or not a premiere, then, and if there's nothing recorded, then it's still really a relationship between the the conductor and and the orchestra as to what the conductor has studied and brings to the rehearsals. But you're right. I mean, frequently we only have two rehearsals on a a new piece and then, you know, go. Okay.
0: Well, let me change the question a little bit too then. For your orchestral excerpt class, for right. students who, let's say, are dealing with that uh, trio from Beethoven 8 for the first time or mm-hmm. know, various passages in uh, Bartok or what have you, what sorts of things, you know, as you walk through their shoes in in preparing those pieces yep. for the first time, do you, you give them as advice to get that passage in their fingers really well and solidly and quickly?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, before each semester, I choose a body of excerpts and get them to the students, either, you know, actual paper copies or PDFs. So they have a chance to look over what, what they're in for, basically. And these parts are bowed and fingered as I, you know, I mean, I, the Philadelphia bowings are there. The fingerings are more of a personal issue. And I know you've been deeply involved with um, with various aspects of fingerings, but we do we do go through that. And I try to show them, this is how I finger it because, you know, and give them the reason. And I would also say to them, now, do you have a different idea about this passage? And if somebody pipes up and says, yeah, why can't we finger it this way? And then, then I'll explain. Either it's, it, you know, it's awkward or you're changing strings to a different timbre and it doesn't fit the line or something like that, you know? So they have that understanding. And then then we work on the appropriate tempo and the expressive quality. A lot of these kids, they still, I, I encounter certain attitudes about orchestral excerpts. Like, here's my concerto or my sonata up here. Excerpts can be done here. And I, I, I constantly let them know, I said, look, when you're taking an audition, you have to prepare these excerpts with as much care and and involvement and musical expression as you would a Bach suite or a Beethoven sonata or or you know a Dvorak concerto it's it's you it's so competitive you know and you have to show that you're bringing that musicality and that insight to your audition and so that's that's a lot of what we emphasize as well
0: Excellent. yeah Okay, so one of the main overarching themes of this series of of interviews has been inspiration, motivation to practice. And the amount of practicing that it can take sometimes to get something. Well, I I suppose there's there's two kinds of students. Well, there's of course more than two kinds of students. But it seems, for example, there are some students who maybe their estimate of a particular hard passage is, wow, this is practically unplayable. And then they get it to where they can actually play it. And then they kind of take their their foot off the gas because they're impressed that they got as far as they did. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Uh, And then there, there are other times where people just still keep it in their mind that, well, I'm not ever necessarily going to get it to sound as good as the recording at tempo. And I think one of the things as we try to either increase our practice time when we're at a young age, or uh, just figure out how, what we should be doing in our practicing, there's something about when you can be armed with knowledge of a trajectory with a particular passage as it goes from very awkward, very clunky, to, wow, look at me, I own that. Um, Are there things that you do with your students, for example, to help them in the mindset of practicing those passages?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of that can happen in the lesson itself. If you can focus in the lesson on, all right, you're having a problem with this piece, and here's the problem. It's either, you know, with your right hand, with how you approach the string, creating a beautiful sound, sustaining uh, all the way to the tip, whatever, or, you know, it could be a number of things, work with them on smooth bow changes, or, you know, uh, how, the, how the weight flows through the hand, that kind of thing. Um, and if it's left hand, in fact, I have a student right now who's very sort of, as Nike would say, collapsed. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> And so the process is get them up, right? <clears throat> and then have them sort of renew their relationship with the fingerboard. You know, so that they feel like they can get anywhere they need to get with the fingerboard. And what does that mean about the position of your left arm and how to get over the side of the cello and all that kind of thing? Because, you know, it's easy to get saggy. So having looked at that, then if they're trying to increase their speed to play faster, maybe. um, Yeah. Remember that exercise Nike used to do? (laughs) It was kind of the the lifting exercise. Yeah, that that one is a good one, you know. And then just telling them, look, you know, for, for coming down, just let gravity take you. Like if you're doing this, if you're impatient, waiting for somebody to show up or something like that, you know. And to show them that there are ways to make it easier. There are ways to get rid of the tension, unnecessary tension, to make playing easier. And the same with like shifting. If they're trying to get a really high note, I try to help them by working backwards. By saying, okay, you're trying to shift up to, say, a high D, for example, or something. Well, let's go up there and find that D, sit on it, vibrate it, play it forte, you know, find your balance. So it really feels great. Now, that's how you want to arrive at that note when you shift to it. So then what we do is, you know, and you've done this with George, is we'll sit on that note and we'll just pull it back and we won't move the elbow or anything like that. And then I'll say, all right, your elbow was normally lower, I'm sure in a lower position. So before you shift, you know, you've got to bring the elbow up and, you know, the whole, the whole, um, uh, process of, as you know, um, preparing the shift and, and we, I work through that with them and I figure if I can get them to do it in the lesson, whatever the problem is, then hopefully they'll remember what it feels like and they can take it home. And I also tell them, look, if, if it's not working for you, you know, connect with the left side of your brain. Like maybe you need to set up a mirror or something so you can watch yourself. And I said, I I tell them, I said, this is, I used to do this all the time. And it's, it's amazing what you think you're doing. And when you actually see yourself playing, it's like, oh my goodness, I look like that. Wow. (laughs) You know, (laughs) so I think it's just really great to, to have that visual feedback in a way. But yeah, the challenge is to really make your students their own best teacher when you're not around. That's, that's the biggest, biggest challenge. And I think maybe one way to help is to say, all right, these are the things you need to work on this week to try maybe just two or three things to improve and to see if you can address those every day, even if it's five minutes, seven minutes, whatever, you know, on each concept to see if you can make it feel better, more relaxed. And I tell them, if they're trying to, to play something and it doesn't feel good anywhere, stop immediately because that's how bad habits are, are formed. And you know it, it's, it's amazing what kids are able to do in spite of themselves. <laughs> I'm sure you've seen a lot of that. It's amazing. Yeah, right, right now I have a student who has the most um, tense, tight, grabby, left hand thumb that I've ever seen in my life. And I'm I'm trying everything. So if you have any ideas, <laughs> I'm open. It's yeah.
0: Well I, I love I love everything you're saying. I love also how it makes me think you you sound in many cases a lot like Nykrug And um
1: he's, you know, I think about him every day and and I try to use at least some of the basics that he taught me every day in orchestra or when I'm working with kids or trying to help them. I mean, yeah, he really had it figured out.
0: Really did. Do you have any, I mean, you and I got to share a a number of stories and some of the other former NICRU students in this grad article, I guess it was just last year, but um, do you have a particular favorite anecdote you'd like to share with the viewers about uh, (sighs) studying with, with George?
1: Wow. Um there's one, I mean, you know how George could be. He could, he could really be kind of brutal at times. Um, and and sometimes, I mean, he was always very, very nice to me. Absolutely. I have no complaints. But one time um we were coming to see him. Uh Aaron and my brother Aaron and I would would try to go to see him. Um <clears throat> When I was in Saratoga, uh, New York, with the or with the orchestra, even though it was a three hour drive to Concord, we felt it was important to try to you know stay in touch, and and the visits were were really wonderful. He would play videos and recordings for us, and you know all kinds of great experiences. So one time we arrived, and there was this bass player that was leading. I mean, he would teach anybody. He would teach violin, viola, cello, bass, and he, the the person left. And he said in his inimitable style, oh, yeah, that guy, I'm taking him from hopeless to bad and from bad to mediocre. And we were looking like, oh, my gosh. (laughs) But, you know, that that was George. But the thing is, though, that he did he did see every student as, I think, an opportunity, you know, to to make them better regardless. And he could, he really could. If you had the right attitude and you were willing to work hard, miracles could happen. And I I would see them every week at at Boston. It was really something.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think about him every day too. And not just in cello playing and teaching. I teach some theory classes, for example. And it's funny how that, I mean, you're right that he def- definitely could have a um, uh, kind of old school or gruff exterior. Yes. But he was yes. he also could have infinite patience for helping somebody solve a particular problem. And I, yes. I I really I want to be as fascinated with the the problem solving process as as he always seemed to be.
1: Mm-hmm. He, he loved that, especially when he saw that you were really trying. Yeah. And. I never felt that it, that I was failing, you know, it would be always, well, let's try it this way. Yeah. No. Okay. Then do it this way. <laughs> and, and he used to talk about his initial experiences with Dunas when he was one of the first cello students that Dunas ag- agreed to accept into his studio. And um, he would get together with the other students and they would discuss, well, what'd you learn from Dunas this week? Well, he talked about shifting and he told me to do it this way. He said, Really? He told me to do it that way. And they would have these big arguments about, you know, Dunas's approach to whatever basic technical problem there was. And then George finally realized, no, it's not only one way to do something. It's just how you have to have many, many different ideas in your toolbox to help the student understand and have that light bulb moment. Because not everybody's brain is wired the same way. Right. You know? Right. Go ahead. Well, no, I mean, to me, that was just fantastic because it seems as though a lot of teachers out there just seem to have a their way, you know, a way. And sometimes it might feel like they're trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. Right. But George never felt that way. He, he had this customized teaching technique, I think, that, that would, would pivot to whatever the need was and however the concept could be, could be communicated.
0: Yeah, that's so true. He could immediately identify the underlying principle he was applying and define it as a principle.
1: Yeah. But
0: then it was customized to you. Yes. I, I know I'm paraphrasing, but I remember sometime he said something to the effect of that, that customizability. Something like if, if two people go to see their doctor and one has high blood pressure and the other one has low blood pressure, they better not leave with the same medicine. Right. You know, something to that, that effect. And something
1: like, wow. that, that's a good analogy. Yeah, I like that.
0: Uh, Hey, would you talk a bit about the uh, C. Hartman Kuhn Award? Oh, sure.
1: (laughs) Sure, sure. Um, Well, it's it's unique to the Philadelphia Orchestra. And every year it is given out. And it is supposed to be a secret to the recipient. However, once the recipient is chosen by the music director, the entire, your entire family is told about it because they want your family in the audience on the day that they give you the the award. And it's usually, um, after the intermission of like an afternoon concert. So, but the, the purpose of the award is to recognize a member of the orchestra that has basically enhanced the reputation of the Philadelphia Orchestra through, um, whatever, activities they have done during the year. It could be performance, it could be community work, um, anything that, that the music director feels that you've gone above and beyond. And um, so in 1996, I got it. <laughs> and for me, it, it was basically uh, in recognition of my work over the years with the volunteer women's committees. And they had a, a huge event they would do every year. And it started out as kind of like a radiothon, where you would collect premiums and um, publish a catalog, and uh, members of the community, subscribers, anybody would call in and and bid on these um, on these items to raise money for the orchestra. And so a lot of the orchestra members would offer certain premiums, like um, lessons or. Um, even even something as exotic as um, a, a guided bike ride or water skiing lessons or um, pre- preparing a dinner in their home for six of your friends that kind of thing. Um, so there would be a, re- a wide variety, and so I would be running around collecting these premiums for 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 the event. And um, at one point, uh, well, we we had a collaboration with a local radio station that. Um, it was a classical station, but they did have advertisement. They don't exist anymore in that form. But um, at one point I was on the, on the radio with one of the um, the radio disc jockeys talking about the radio and it was it was great fun to sort of you know just banter back and forth. Uh, but we did that in, in, um, in various forms for for many, many years. And most recently, the name of the event was called Perfect Harmony. And um, it was shortened from a number of days down to just one one night. But it was the same, the same effort to just raise money for the orchestra. So I think over the course of the years that I was involved with that, I think we raised at least $250,000 probably for the orchestra. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but it was really a great surprise. And I was so thrilled because at the time that I got the award, Wolfgang Svalisch was our music director. And I have to say that over the course of my my career, he was one of the greatest conductors that I've ever worked with, absolutely in every way. He may not have been the most um, dynamic and the most interested in social outreach, but as far as a musician goes, he was at the top of his game. I mean, rehearsals were absolutely incredible. That is what really matters a lot to to me and my colleagues is what happens in rehearsals when you really make the donuts, you know what I mean? (laughs) I mean, concerts are one thing, but establishing that relationship and getting a greater understanding of your conductor's knowledge and breadth of experience and what his vision is and how he wants to get his ideas out of you and and express them is just incredible. Really
0: well, and because i I think it's impossible for that not to translate to the concerts as well
1: yes, right, but but working through all of that was just so amazing with him, and you know every no no one's perfect, but he he had a special affinity for Brahms and Strauss and mm-hmm. Dvorak in particular, right. and um yeah, those and and actually Bruckner as well, those performances were absolutely electrifying, really
0: Wow, great. <laughs> That's true. All right. Well, and what about upcoming performances or projects?
1: Well, let's see. We are. Well, let me let me just say say one. Well, one couple of things. Um, uh-huh. Last year with COVID, um, <clears throat> you know, it was difficult for everybody. Um, so we kept going by uh, uh, creating something called the digital stage on our website so that our audiences and our donors could say, oh, they're still performing. They're still putting stuff up, you know, so we can see them and be aware that we're still here. And then um, later in 2020, we started gathering and recording and putting new new material up. So we're gonna continue to do that. Um, <coughs> we are uh, performing still, but it's in kind of a, a limited capacity. We're still doing shorter concerts with no intermissions, that kind of thing. Um, but as the year goes on, we're hopeful to start back with longer concerts and, and actual intermissions, if we can do that safely. Um, we're hoping to tour for a week in the Midwest in early March. We're hoping to resume our summer schedule of going to Vail, Colorado in July for 10 days for that festival and going back to Saratoga, New York for the three-week festival up there at, at uh, Sister Tarotoga Performing Arts Center. And after that's all finished, we're planning on doing a full festivals tour of Europe. Uh, fingers crossed. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yes. <clears throat> so those are the big orchestral events. Um, I'm uh, hopeful that I can at some point go back to in-person teaching at Temple, although they're doing virtual instruction for the first two weeks of this, the semester. And also I've started um, doing a little work with Temple Preparatory Division with my brother. Um, I I did that last year on Zoom with string quartets, if you can imagine, trying to coach. That was quite challenging, but the kids were great and hung in. So this past fall, we were back in person and it was great, really amazing. Um, there There are some stupendous just wonderful kids out there. They're so talented at an early age. Um yeah, so <clears throat> that's been very inspirational for me. And um going forward, um we're we're in place, we're positioned, and hopefully on the 24th of January we can, you know, resume all of that. So yeah, um I I was for many years in a string quartet that performed in center city and in various locations around the city, but that's been on hiatus right now, and I'm not sure when that can really uh start up again. Hmm. But we're hopeful. We're hopeful.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, best of luck. So,
1: thank you. Thank you. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and thanks so um, much for your time. This has been. Oh no
1: problem. No real, problem.
0: Real pleasure hearing. Um. Thoughts. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's been fun for me too. And like the more I talk, the more I think about things that I think. Like, oh, I don't want to leave that up. Um, but. I would just say for for students too, you know, even during COVID, if to keep them inspired, I'm sure that was an extra challenge for you. Um, I was trying to encourage kids, just you know, if you have the time, listen to great recordings. There's there's recordings of Feuermann out there, and Heifetz, and just all all the greats, just to get that sound in your ears and to keep it to keep it there as something to strive for for yourself, you know. Um, and I feel very fortunate that I can, I can get students to our concerts, which again, I think is, is a really, um, important thing to say, oh, there's my teacher up there. Wow. She's, you know, and look at, listen to this sound. Oh my goodness. You know, as a form of inspiration. And it kind of, you know, brings me back full circle when you were remarking about, you know, the, the, the problem of you know, not enough orchestra jobs for all the string players that are, that are out there. That's true, but there's still our jobs. And we had, even though we were shut down for quite a while, there were quite a, quite a number of people that retired and left just all kinds of orchestras all over the country. And um, to look now and see that the openings that we have, it's, it's overwhelming. It really is. So I think now more than ever, the odds of a student being able to win a position are probably higher than they've been for a while. Just something to think about. I mean, when you look at the International Musician trade paper and see all the auditions that are finally starting to open up, it's it's truly, it's, it's really heartening in a way, <laughs> you know? Yeah, so.
0: That's great. Yeah. Well, yeah. Thanks again and um, I look forward to hearing my students' reactions and other viewers' reactions. I always do. Uh, So often, I mean, just even with the theme being fairly common, but everybody's take and perspective and history with cello and music is is all so different. I, I just love this variety.
1: Yes, it's amazing. And I did listen to quite a number of your previous recordings before doing this. I I was so impressed with the variety of people that you've had on. It's really incredible, you know, and also, you know, very, very amazing uh, how these individuals have crafted careers for themselves being so versatile and, and you are right students right now, they they really do have to be much more versatile and um, learn skills in college that I never had to learn. So, yeah, that is the
0: case. Well, thanks again, Kathy. I look forward to every opportunity to visit with you. And uh, thank you, viewers. And best of luck with your practicing this weekend and beyond. We'll see you next Friday.